Welcome to the Faith and Grief Podcast, where we explore the intersection of faith and grief. I'm your host, Shelley Craig, Program Director here at Faith and Grief. We hope the conversations and interviews you hear offer you some comfort and hope on your grief journey. Faith and Grief is a nonprofit that provides grief support programs online and partners with local organizations to offer our programs for their community. We offer monthly drop-in grief support gatherings, grief workshops, and getaway weekend retreats. Find out more about all our programs and this podcast at faithandgrief.org. On today's episode, we'll be speaking with Ann Jacobus. Uh, she is a young adult writer, and she has a new book called The Coldest Winter I Ever Spent. You may be familiar with the Mark Twain quote, The Coldest Winter I Ever Spent was a summer in San Francisco. In the book, which is fiction, uh, she introduces us to uh, Dell, who's an 18-year-old who's come out of her own storm, dealing with mental health issues, uh, depression, anxiety, as well as addiction. And uh, she ends up uh, in San Francisco with her aunt, then faces her aunt's uh, terminal cancer diagnosis. It is a warm, funny, smart book about grief, about growing up, and about love. And we're so excited to have Anne on the podcast today. I know that you had been a crisis counselor, a crisis line counselor. Was that, um, has that really helped inform the way you write? Because both your books are dealing with mental health issues, um, specifically suicide, and as we walk into your book, The Coldest Winter I Ever Spent, which I love the fact that you uh, quoted Mark Twain here, um, because summer in uh, Northern California can be pretty darn chilly. Um, but how has, tell me how you went from being that voice on the other line, because you, you walk us in immediately. That's one of the things that's so, uh, I love so much about this book it just draws you in immediately because we are in the midst of crisis at the very beginning and a crisis that not everyone's experienced. It's an individual crisis. Someone's called a helpline, which is huge. It takes a lot of guts and courage to do that. It does. So it tell, does me, so, tell me that, that journey, I guess. Um, okay. The, I am not doing it right now, but I have uh, volunteered on, about three crisis lines over the course of my life. And most recently here in San Francisco at San Francisco Suicide Prevention. And I was there for over five years. And it's, it's very gratifying work uh, to be a crisis line counselor. It's trying and it's sometimes, it, it, there's a lot of just run of the mill calls. Believe me, you know, the majority of the calls we get are people either getting more information about someone else uh, or they just are feeling very depressed and need some emotional support. Not that many are actually in crisis, happily. Um, but when they are, that's also sort of high drama, as I tried to show in that first chapter. And I always knew, being a writer and a storyteller, that that would make a very good, make a good scene or a good story. And so the whole, you know, I would say that probably all the time that I've worked at the crisis line. I just always had that in the back of my mind. I was kind of taking notes on some of the interesting conversations and, and themes that would come up and all. And of course, it's all entirely confidential and anonymous. Uh, 
But so there's nothing that has actually happened. It's very much a conglomerate. But um, I've had crisis counselor friends read them and say, oh, yeah, you know, this is this is great. And you've, you've covered this because there are certain things that happen uh, repeatedly. And so that was something I did want to include, in a, at least in a short story or in something somewhere, because you really, you know, a good story does have high stakes and, and desire and drama, and it epitomizes that. You've got someone in some of the cases, or in a few cases, who are completely overwhelmed and who are considering uh, they're having suicidal ideation at the very least. Mm -hmm. They are thinking about how it would be to not have to be around anymore. And in some cases, they are already have a plan or they are, it's imminent. And that's, of course, when it's a true crisis. And that does not happen very often. I, I would like to, <laughs> to say that. But um, it's, a, it's a point of high drama. And someone has to decide a counselor needs to just help someone hang on. Our mandate was to hang on for only, you know, the next 24 hours, to find a way to, to give the person that we are talking to a, a safety plan and a reason to hold on, to help them find that reason themselves, of course. We, we don't give them the reason. And, uh, and also to, to provide them with any resources. That was our, our main goal. And anyway, so, so the fact that it is it encapsulates what storytellers try to work up to, which is a moment of drama and decision making and crisis. You know, authors are charged or writers are charged with putting our characters into crisis and to throw as many difficult things at them. And when you have someone call in on a crisis line, they're already there. So it um, it it does lend itself to storytelling. Um, with respect, you know, and anonymity and all that. Yeah, it will. I I appreciate it so much because I think um, as we enter Dell's world, um, we wonder what you know. I think a lot of people wonder who who's on the other line if you call that number. You know, who are we? Who am I going to call? Um, I think the depiction of the call is so um, brilliantly handled with care and um, education, which I think is super important. I think for a young adult or anybody reading your book, by the way, it would help demystify a little bit about if I call, what's going to happen? Like, do people f like fly in on helicopters? You know, like they're, they're, we don't talk a lot about what might happen if you call 988 or if you call a help crisis line. Um, so I think helping to demystify that is so helpful. Well, let's talk about sure. Dell. Um, Dell has had a difficult time. Um, she's had a lot of challenges. She sounds like so many people you know. And at the same time, she's coming into her own. She's, she's kind of at a point where her own personal crisis is still sort of there in the background, but she's, she's seeing light again. She's starting to find purpose, which um, I think is a, a great character. So how'd you find Dell? Where did Dell come from? 
Well, and first, let me just make one comment. Dell is honestly a little teeny bit young to be a crisis line counselor. It's generally more like 21. Although the Trevor line, which um, uh, you know caters to the LGBTQ kids and all, they, they will take younger counselors. Yes. So it is possible, but I did have to bend the rules just a tiny bit there. Um, Dell, yes, she, you know, I, I subscribe to the theory that fiction writers, storytellers, you know, that our characters are all parts of ourselves. Kind of like if you, if you um, do dream interpretation, Jungian, you know, where the dream is, everything in the dream is part of yourself or whatever. I think there's some truth to that, or that at least makes sense to me. So my villains, the males, the, you know, the, of course, the, the protagonists and the old people and the young people, you know, they're all kind of coming from somewhere in my experience and my um, consciousness. But that being said, the other thing, as I think I just mentioned, a writer does have to give a character a great many problems and a, a very strong desire and then many things to prevent them from getting to that. Otherwise, it's a very boring story. So <laughs> there, there has to know. be a, a crisis. There has to be a issue. There has to be a problem. I mean, otherwise, what do we get from the story other than that person was a nice person? You know, like, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so that, you know, so she does have a great deal. <laughs> she has a, 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 a backstory, which is difficult in that she lost her mother at a young age and her mother had a, a severe, pretty severe mental illness that she struggled with off and on. And, um, and what you learn, well, I don't want to give too much away, but anyway, so she, and, and when her, after her mother died, her father in his grief, speaking of grief, really pulled away from Del, uh, who was then an adolescent, also had her own mental health issues, just kind of more, um, you know, anxiety and depression things, which is, I shouldn't say just only, but compared to her mother, who was uh, more, had larger things to deal with. And so Del, uh, went off to boarding school and really kind of went into a downward spiral and found herself abusing substances that she could get a hold of because um, and and also uh, made a suicide attempt, which she happily survived. But that's all in the past. And what's you, you know, we give all these problems to our our characters, but you've got to give them some things to work with as well. And of course, that is her wonderful relationship with her aunt and guardian who takes her in and gives her everything she really kind of needed, you know, structure and meets her right where she is and just loves her. And they have a great fun together. And, um, you know, she gives her a job and she make you know, she finishes school and all of that. So that is what puts Dell back on the path to, she learns to cope. She also gets professional support. She has, right. you know, family support finally. And, and she's coping very well and, and doing very well until, <laughs> until this um, wonderful person, uh, her Aunt Fran, uh, learns that she has got uh, a terminal cancer. And, of course, that throws poor Dell on, on a very big loop. Yeah. And I, I think that it's, it's, it's a human story because just when so many times we feel like we may have come through something um, you know, walked through the fire, whatever 
uh, metaphor you want to use, uh, some other challenge presents itself. And, <laughs> and in speaking of grief, yeah, we're going to talk about grief. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. Um, but what, what drew, to, drew you to talk about um, addiction, um, mental health issues, and in this case, adding grief um, to the narratives that you're pulling um, and creating? Um, okay, so substance abuse, I, and I will... I have permission from my family. I do have um, family members, uh, siblings who ha have struggled with alcoholism, mm -hmm. uh, basically. But I have been to uh, 12 step meetings and I've supported, I have a couple of siblings actually. And so I am no stranger to substance abuse or to alcoholism at least. Mm -hmm. And um, and then mental health, I do have a sibling who is has some physical and mental disabilities. And um, sadly, I lost uh, a niece with, and she lost her daughter to suicide about eight years ago. So that was certainly firsthand. And I mean, here I was having been working on suicide hotlines over the course of my life and uh, to have that happen, it's, we still were not prepared. And if, when we do start talking more about grief, of course, there, I mean, grief is probably best described as always complex, right? But when it's, right. when it's around a suicide, I feel like that must just complicate it as much as it can possibly be complicated. Um, so, and, but I would also go ahead and just add um, that I had my own uh, experiences as a, it was a, when I was a sophomore in high school, in fact. And when I visit high schools on author visits to talk about writing and all, I always throw in mental health talk. And I, I let the kids know, look, when I was a sophomore in high school, I was struggling with depression and I was suicidal. I was having suicidal ideation. And at the time, I mean, we talked about it far less than we do now. I told no one, it was never diagnosed. I did manage to get through it, but it informed the rest of my life. Ever since then, I have been drawn to the subject of it, uh, for better or worse, and have uh, worked in suicide prevention and find it coming up in the things I write often. Um, so I honestly, I'm, I'm, in the end, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful to have survived it. Yeah, I mean, and to have yeah, you're a survivor in this situation. I mean, I I just appreciate it because I think um, I think suicide prevention is talking about this, whether absolutely we're, we're writing about it, sharing our stories. Um, you know, yes, you can certainly um, be supportive and prevent suicide by being a hotline uh, operator. And I highly recommend if people want to share and you're just listening most of the time because exactly. someone needs someone to listen. But uh, to that, uh, talking about suicide and taking some of the stigma away is how we save lives. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And this is what I say to kids. It's that suicide is 
largely preventable. I, I don't think you can say always, but Correct. really almost always it's preventable, but only if we talk about it. It is not preventable if we will not discuss it and we can't even say the word. And that's kind of how it was when I was a kid because that was so long ago. <laughs> but, well, but, but it's but getting much better. It is It is better. And I will have to say um, uh, Gen Z, my kids' age, um, they're college seniors. Uh, they're much more comfortable talking about mental health, talking about where they are emotionally. And when their friends are struggling, when they have struggled, they are far more comfortable reaching out to one another and talking about it. Now, our older generations label that as being too emotional, being a snowflake, being whatever that is. But they are far more in tune with what's going on with them inside than past generations. And they're choosing not to self-medicate. They're choosing those things. They're seeking other ways to support and find coping mechanisms. Even in their grief. As they're grieving, they are far more comfortable talking about their grief and frustrated with us old folks who won't talk about it. And, and, you know, that sort of separation you talk about with Del and her father after her mother dies is so common because someone in the family wants to talk, wants to share, wants to say, I feel like crap today, whatever, whatever it is. And the other person is just, it's so hard and it's so intense. They just can't go there. And that frustrates both of them. Um, and not just those two people could frustrate like exponential in the family and friends and those around us. Um, yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. Yeah. And I, I think that's one thing I liked about, um, and I think it's a good example for kids to read and adults for that matter, because I think your book could easily, adults would, could learn a lot from it, <laughs> um, is that as Dell is dealing with Aunt Fran's diagnosis, she's recognizing that these old wounds are coming up. You know, it's not, it's like, oh my goodness, the, some of this stuff feels familiar, but you know, the anxiety, those different things. I appreciated how you kind of brought that back in the midst of she's trying to like, like the cute boy, <laughs> you know, like trying to be a teenager, you know, like an 18 year old, and at the same time deal with these really heavy adult uh, mature issues. Um, so how did, what's your ideas around how do you balance that between the serious stuff and kind of the real, like, I just want to be a teenager. Um, well, that's the wonderful thing about YA. And that is why I have been ever since I started writing, I have been drawn to YA and, and young adult is, it's defined simply by the age of the protagonist. Plus the fact that it's a story told as if in the present. Uh, it doesn't have to be present tense, but it's if it's a 18 year old protagonist, but it's told from the advantage point of uh, not the advantage, the vantage point of a adult looking back, then it's an adult story. Right. But when you keep it in that very teenage, you know, or the younger, I should say, uh, frame of mind, point of view, then it's then it becomes young adult. But there's no other difference between adult and young adult than that when it comes down to it. And you know, it's in all genres and all that. Um, and so Dell, uh, yes, I mean, I, I, all of the things I write tend to be a little on the serious and heavy side, 
And I do try very hard to lighten it with some humor and and to, just to keep it in that that young point of view, which will sort of I feel naturally bring in more humor. I mean, um, kids are or younger people are learning to get a grip, and so much about the world is new and fresh and perplexing and frustrating. And I mean, not that it isn't to adults, but um, well, I'm getting a little off the subject, but. I had a really excellent writing teacher once tell me that the difference between children and adult literature is that kids are learning to get a grip and adults are learning to let go. And uh, yeah. <laughs> I love being in that, that point of view of where you're trying to figure things out and learning to get a handle on life, even when it's really, really hard, which it certainly is for Dell. Um, yeah. But she learns so much by by stepping up to the plate and meeting what has been you know thrown at her basically well and I think um you know at least my perspective was you know she had gone through this really difficult time early in her life and dealt with her addiction and dealt with uh depression and anxiety and feels sort of like she's in a place you know going to meetings doing doing the, doing what she needs to do work in the work in the um room uh working, doing the book, you know, doing the things that she needs to do. So she has some resources to lean back on, which mm -hmm. I think is good as far as so many times when we hear about stories like this, there always seems to be a void of resilience of what the character can lean on. Other mm -hmm. than sometimes it's just people like oh, a mom or dad or a friend or whatever is like the only like buoy that they have where in this writing, to me, it's like, okay, I have that, and I have these other tools that I have been fortunate enough to be brave enough um, and courageous enough to go seek out, whether on purpose or not. Um, it, talk to me a little bit about that, how Dell uses these, uh, for lack of a better metaphor, buoys to kind of help her in her process. It was really important to me in this story and I, I, there's some other authors I know who write about mental health in various forms to, to model a, a better situation. You know, so often mental health stories, at least in the past, were kind of the secrecy and the shame and, the, and, the, and it going terrible. Now, fortunately, at least in some cases, there are kids or, or people, I should say, who are lucky enough to be in an area where there are resources, lucky enough to have a family who meets them where they are and helps them learn to cope, and lucky enough even to get some professional support and or medication, and then they can go on with their lives. And so modeling that or having it this be the case where the story is not about mental health per se, it's just one of the things that is part of Dale's character. She does struggle with some anxiety and depression in the past, but she is coping very well. And learning to cope, it, it when you don't have any support and you don't have a family that will talk about it or accept it or whatever, um, it can be extraordinarily difficult. But when that stigma is parted a little bit and people, you know, just kind of 
look at what's going on, learning to cope can be reasonably straightforward. I mean, obviously it depends on what someone is struggling with, but you know, good diet, it's the same as coping with good physical health or, or mm -hmm. keeping your good physical health, right? It's sleep and, and good diet and um, exercise. And then some personal mechanisms for dealing with um, with anxiety or depression, ways to kind of help you get out of it. You learn how to, to manage your own health, mental and physical. So that was the thinking, or I, I'm not sure it was that conscious, frankly, <laughs> but that's how it kind of worked out, that, that we wanted a situation where, you know, Dell has learned a great deal about coping. And then even this terrible thing, probably the worst thing she could imagine is thrown mm -hmm. at her, you know, not to give it away, but but she she does pull on all her resources. Um, and well, and I think maybe, that's that's the uh, good heroine in Dell is yeah. you know that she's she knows that she has challenges at different levels, a lot of it internal, um, and yet she doesn't really give up. Even like you said, the person who she admired, loved felt love from Aunt Fran is going to die. And how is, you know, and, and for some people that would have immediately like, how am I going to do this? She's the person who's kind of kept me afloat this whole time and really helped me. How am I going to do that? So there's this uh, almost anticipatory grief that she goes through um, because she knows, I, I mean, it's a terminal diagnosis. There's, there, you know, we don't know what day Anne Fran's going to die, but we know that that is going to happen at some point in this book. Um, and it's really happening at some point in Dell's life. And I think there are so many young people who have been in this situation, whether it is um, a loved one with a terminal diagnosis, or it can really, to me, even be much broader than that. Um, being a child where parents are um, divorcing, or um, friendships, and this is a real tough thing for young people, when friendships don't survive. Because um, sometimes friends, you know, I, I always say that's the hard part about, like, junior high. Junior high, like, you start to divvy up who your friends are and who the people that you're, like, really cool with and the people that were just kind of cool. Um, and that's just brutal. I mean, it's, it, is. it is. I mean, it's brutal. Um, no other word. Yeah, there's, there's no other word to it, but... You know, I appreciate that you've given Dell um, a chance to see what she has available to her. Because, I mean, that's a big deal. And let's talk about Anne Fran. She's totally an awesome character. Um, <laughs> I uh, like her, too. Yeah, she's just fun, full of energy, doesn't take herself too serious, um, which I think that's our problem so many times. Young adults uh, start to learn that, oh, i got to take myself serious, you know, and it that uh, sort of rub with, I want to be a kid. Um, it's just so hard to grasp because, you know, the adults look like they're all mature and everything, but we know we're not. No. Oh, well, I was going to, I don't mean to interrupt no, you, but no, I was no. going to say that earlier. I love also writing about young adult characters because I, we all, I feel like I'm still a teenager half Heck the time yeah. trying to figure things out. Right. And um, so, and, and well, not to steer this in another direction, but I nursed my mother through a cancer quite similar to Anne Franz. And in fact, I pulled on that experience a great deal for this book. 
And I felt like a, a kid the whole time in that. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know, you know, it, it, it makes you feel very childish. And, and as you also mentioned, you know, things come up, other griefs. And um, uh, it was it was a real learning experience. It was also beautiful and had, you know, I, I mean, everyone knows that that's going to be hard and sad. But what I think is surprising, and that was another thing I wanted to get across in the book, was how that final stage also had so many surprising moments of humor <laughs> and joy and forgiveness um which was you know mind-blowing and 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 supportive for for dell i guess but anyway um yes no, we no, all I, feel like kids in the face of that i always tell people like that like how old are you i can tell you exactly how old i am but in my brain i'm still 14 you know like <laughs> like and i'm still going what you know like, <laughs> i'm shocked by things <laughs> And it's funny how that is, but, you know, you speak to that about um, Del having that time before Fran dies. Um, and it is so precious. When we are given the privilege of being with someone in their last days, weeks, months, um, it is such a gift. And yet we don't in our culture uh, appreciate that at all, except in a personal way, like, well, we, like yourself, um, in those days when you were with your mom, when you look back now, what parts of that, uh, you know, stick out treasure, uh, sort of become a treasure chest for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, I can think of, it, it was such a, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of a blur, well, and yeah. I was also come, going back and forth between California and Texas. I'd go for like two to three weeks and then come home for a couple of weeks and switch off with my sister or my brothers as we all uh, cared for. And there was only about a three month period that was acute where we really needed to be with her a lot or, you know, or most of the time. Uh, and, but there were, you know, my mom was, she was had a wonderful attitude and she knows Fran very well and Fran worked <laughs> with her. And so this is how I know Fran. Uh, she, she was not afraid really of dying. And so she was much, but she just was sad to not have more time. That's how she felt. And so she kind of crammed that last time with, you know, I, I think a week and a half before she died, we went to, what is the store? Is it Tuesday? Um, well, anyway, it doesn't matter, but, you know, and it, it completely tired her out, but she bought a new pair of pajamas and we just shopped. And I mean, this was something she wanted to do. And half the time I was thinking, mom, you know, why are you doing this? You're going to exhaust yourself. But she wanted to see people and, you know, all kinds of things. And she would talk to each of us. And even as her, she, the cancer eventually was in her brain. So it affected very much. She couldn't read. She, mm -hmm. she also couldn't remember and all but she would still have these incredibly interesting and funny conversations with us. And we, you know, you get used to it and then you're just kind of conversing back. And I, so I, I remember some of those. I could never recreate them, I'm afraid, but, um, but I think of that. And uh, it, it was such a rich time. I'm so grateful for it. So grateful. And that she didn't, I had, you know, I've been, I, I've lost all my parents now. I had a stepmom and a father. And and with 
my father, he sort of fought everything right up till the end. So there was, and he was doing that for some of us as well. Mm. It wasn't really just for him, but there was not this admission of, yes, I will be going soon. This is the final stage. It was more like, we're going to fight this till the very end. And I think you miss out. Uh, I mean, I think you need to fight as long as you can, or right, as long as right. there's a chance to, but at some point, and that's a very hard and it takes a lot of courage. And and my mom, she struggled with that too, certainly. Uh, not like that's an easy thing, I'm sure. But it, you know, accepting that and kind of taking that first step of, well, if there is limited time here, then let's take care of all these things and let's enjoy it. Uh, yeah. Enjoy these last times as best as possible. That yeah. was wonderful. And, and there is some um, peace that can be found in, oh, very much. You know, you talked about sort of uh, learning as we start and then letting go the second half of our lives. And there is kind of that same thing um, when you're in the midst of a terminal illness. Um, letting go. I think Absolutely. we get a lot of rah, rah, rah about fighting, fighting, fighting. And um, sometimes there's just a point where you kind of go, okay, and enjoy what you have which um, thank you for sharing that. Um, I think that will help a lot of our listeners um, because anticipatory grief is a, is a different little animal um, because it's little grieves all the way. And I, I hear from a lot of people that I work with that when their loved one finally dies, there's a level of relief that they didn't expect. Um, but there's also, you know, they feel like they have been grieving for a while Um and so they they're further into their grief than maybe others around them, um, and sometimes that can be uh, a little disheartening to them because they're like, "Come on, you know, let's go," and then everyone else is still just getting started. Yeah, that's that's a, that's very true. Uh, it does help. It did help with, I think, all four of my siblings, or all four of us. There are three siblings with our grief that we did. I think Dell says it in the story, and it was something that I very much felt, that she was already losing pieces or parts of her Aunt Fran. She noticed that and that that was very hard. And of course it is. But but there is still, you know, it's not everything yet. Right. It's just the fact that she can't really read or converse the way she could or right. or whatever it was, you know. Um, but it it does ease ease you into that that journey as well that's true for that yeah well we talk we talk a lot about um that grief is just a relearning mm. and so sometimes if you get a little bit of a head start um uh, because you're losing it's uh your relationship your um some of the physical things your loved one can do things like that uh ahead of their death um that maybe you're just that little bit ahead um but it's not a race uh, as we well know, grief doesn't have a timeline. There's a, there's no box to check. Um, I always joke with people who come to our programs that I wish there was because I could just give you the book and <laughs> <laughs> and you wouldn't have to sit through this <laughs> for two days or whatever. Um, it, you know, it's something to learn, and I think that's what I'm going to appreciate about Dell for the readers is that much like her own recovery. That is a day by day, uh, you know, journey. So is grief. 
Um, they're very similar in lots of ways. And since you've been to 12-step programs as a I, um, you know that it is a day-to-day thing. And in, in the rooms, you see a lot of grief. Um, there's a lot of ah. stuff that people are bringing with them that they have never really had a chance or opportunity to talk about. Um, and I think she'll probably realize that as she's maturing too, um, that grief and, and recovery all kind of work the same way because we're just relearning. That's a really interesting and, and something I had never thought of, but I think that's a very good analogy that those two are, are so similar. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Me. They really are. Um, uh, my husband uh, is an alcoholic and reco- in recovery, um, mm-hmm. has uh, celebrating 10 years coming up. And, um, you know, the journey of um, living with someone in recovery has its own stuff, but also um, there is grief that goes along with it um, because, and I won't spend too much time doing this because uh, Dell's journey, I just think that because of the resources that she's had, the experiences that she has, she has a different, um, and maybe it's just a more mature way to deal with her grief. You know, mm-hmm. she's got some some experience there. She may not always do the, the right thing, and I don't want to get people, like, all, like, dissecting it because that's not it either. But if we've had experiences that have been challenging, hopefully we've learned something from it that we can use, you know, a well to go back to and help us out over and over again. And I feel like Dell is is a character that's going to do that. Yes, absolutely. Having been through pain, um, it definitely allows us to be more present for, for someone else or and, and, and for ourselves when something happens again. We learn about the resilience we have. We, we learn also even just how to cope with it better. You know, maybe every, every grief is different. Every loss is different. But you, there is something to have, ha- something to have ha- having had a little practice. Yeah, it really is. Interesting. Well, Anne, thank you so much for writing this book and both your books, by the way, because I think this will be a good introduction to both your books. Um, And I so appreciate that you're writing in the YA space, um, but glad enough that your characters um, could easily be read by adults and and not feel too foreign uh, at all. Um, Thank you. I I appreciate that. Uh, and I appreciate, too, that you um, are talking and sharing about suicide. Um, uh, suicide prevention, as you said earlier, it is a almost fully preventable um, uh, situation. If we talk about it. Yeah, <laughs> but, it, 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 but we have to talk about it. Um, we have to take the stigma out, away from it. And we um, need folks to... Um, stop looking at a placard that says, if they did this, this, and this, this is going to happen. Because though though, though, though there are red flags that can be uh, exhibited, more times than not, it's the listening and talking and communicating that can be the most supportive. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, just to bring things into context. The pandemic did a real number on on everybody, obviously, but young people 
the, the rates of anxiety and depression and suicidality are just have increased so much and we are we are worried i do expect things to to get back to a you know a better level and as you said there is so much more openness about it with especially with younger people and there there's so much so many more resources but there are also still huge parts of the country where you can't get much in the way of support or help uh, and you know, over half of the people who need mental health treatment and help aren't getting it in right. this country. It, so Exactly. And we are in the midst of a mental health crisis. Yes, we are. I'm, a, I'm sorry that we are. Yeah, but, it, but it, it's true. We've, as, uh, I don't know if easy is the right word, as we've walked out of the emergency of the pandemic, we have unfortunately sort of left awake and we are not addressing that wake well. We are on at the grassroots level, um, mm. but unfortunately, as a nation, we're just seeing um, we're seeing it now. Um, I always go back to my um, favorite quote from Richard Rohr: um, "Pain that is not transformed will be transmitted." Yes, uh, that's that's good and so true. It's true, um, and it takes a lot of work to transform pain. Yeah. Um, and and right, it does. It, it absolutely takes work. But there is a lot of pain being transmitted presently, too. Yeah. So that yeah. makes sense. Well, on that happy note, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? This is, oh, brother. No, that, that, I want to get across to our listeners that this book has a lot of hope in it. And so speaking of that, in your own experience, taking care of your mother, in the losses that you've experienced, where have you found comfort and hope? I have to say, first and foremost, my personal relationships, my family, my loved ones, my husband, good friends. Um, there have been times in my life where I have gotten professional help, and that has been a huge comfort and has helped me get through something, <laughs> any number of things. And um, But stories... Being a storyteller and an avid reader, uh, stories are absolutely uh, one of my biggest sources of comfort and certainly were when I was a teenager. And that was, we talk in the young adult, uh, or, or actually I should say in the children's literature community about uh, books save lives, right? And that for kids, if you can find a story that mirrors who you are and how you're feeling, it can be tremendously reassuring and helpful. And it's also a way for other kids to see how other families, other communities and other people deal with things and love. You learn from it. You, you, you know, as I said, we can model things uh, in them. And um, well, anyway, I, 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 I'm 100% with you. I'm a book person. I've yeah. always been a book person. Um, I think books help you uh, expand your world, especially if you can't, um, like physically. Yes, um, yes. and I think finding, uh, humanity and love, uh, in other communities, the only way sometimes you'll be able to do that is through a book. Yeah. Um, and I think at the same time, it's so important, especially for young people to read and see themselves in the stories because yeah. it's, it's just important. Um, 
And we're in a state right now where there's a lot of hype about what books should be on the shelf. And I come from uh, a long line of uh, library lovers, and I'm like, all the books should be on the shelf. Like, if it doesn't suit you, put it back on the shelf. Yes, and if if the and Actually, every should parent should, sorry, <laughs> I was going to say, okay. should be involved with their kids, and, right. and there are things you may not want them to read, and that is that's great, yeah. you know, and and there are there's things you may want to discuss with them or whatever, but but I want my kids to have access to anything they want, and I want a professional librarian to help them, and their you know teachers, and yes, kids kids absolutely need to affirm who they are through through the stories they're in contact with, and. And um, reading is a part of being human. And so yeah. you have to read. Even if you don't really enjoy it, you're still going to like the story. It's interesting always to me when kids, I, I worked a lot in literacy, and they would always be like, I don't like to read, I don't like to read. And I said, well, let me read your story. And they're like, okay, yeah, please. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> well, see. There you go. You can listen to one. You okay? can listen Even to a story. Really hate reading stories you can listen to a story yeah. or you know and all right you could even watch one if you have to but uh, yeah but uh, stories yes they they comfort they entertain they heal they you know uh, they, they can do so many things for us they're wonderful escape wonderful escape yeah well and again thank you so much for writing this book both your books thank you for this great conversation um i'm so glad you were able to uh, join us on the podcast and uh, best of luck with this book. Um, and will you be back here in Texas uh, doing any book stuff? Well, you know, I just finished. Uh, I was at the Texas Library Association yes. in Austin last week, and it was wonderful. Just had a fabulous time. Awesome. Uh, and I do get back to Texas. I, the, the, you know, I, I don't think I even mentioned it, but Fran and Dell and even the young man, Nick, that she has a crush on, they're all Texans. I know. They're all from <laughs> Dallas, yes. And, they uh, they and all I go to UT. <laughs> No, I'm, I am a I am a Texan uh, by by birth, so uh, you know I I hope to get back very soon. And thank you so much for having me. It's been really a a privilege and an honor, and I'm I, to be part of this conversation around uh, faith and grief and um, you know end of life things. Yeah. I just think we we can we need to spend a lot more time thinking about the end of life in all its forms. Yeah, absolutely, uh, one thing that has been such a gift for me personally in the work that I've been a part of with Faith and Grief is that it's um, opened up a whole uh, area about talking about end of life. Like, what do you want that to look like? Yeah. You know, because we, we don't all get to choose, unfortunately, but if you at least have some idea, um, it can make that process, um, it doesn't make it easier, but it can make it less complicated. It can make it clearer, you know, if yeah. you know that you want to be on your deathbed looking back and not having too many regrets and feeling that maybe you were as kind as you could possibly be to everyone. Yeah. And you can start that right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Know? I mean, yeah. So, like you don't have to wait. <laughs> you don't yeah, have exactly. to wait. Um, uh, you know, especially uh, those of us in the Christian tradition, we're all about second chances, people. Like, you know, <laughs> like it's okay. You know, you can I'm start sure. over today and that's right. okay. You know. So. In the recovery world too, right? Today's the, you know, the, 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 oh, just for today. Gosh, Today's yes. the first day of the rest of your life. It so. is. And you just have to make a choice. That's it. That's right. And thank you so much. This has been great. Thank you, Shelly. Thank you so much. We hope this episode of the podcast offered you some comfort and hope. 
Would you like to support us? Go to faithandgrief.org give and offer a donation for our next episode and become a podcast producer. Thanks for joining us here on the Faith and Grief podcast. We make this possible. Thanks for joining us here on the Faith and Grief podcast. Your support makes this service available to all who are grieving. If you'd like to support the Faith and Grief podcast, go to faithandgrief.org slash give and offer a donation for our next episode.